Would you take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Um, we're going to go back to the book of 1 Peter this morning. Uh, it's been a month since we've been there. Uh, in June, we looked at Peter's greeting to this letter, but since it's been a month, I'd like to take a minute just to kind of reorient us to this letter. One of the main things that draws me to this letter and, and has really kind of provoked me to preach from it is the way that Peter deals with the issue of a, how the church should respond to a culture that has rejected it. This is a book written to people whose faith has made them outsiders in their culture, or as Peter Peter calls them, strangers in the world. One thing that becomes clear as you read this book, though, is that the Christians in Asia Minor were a little bit worse off than we are. Uh, They were suffering persecution for their adherence to the gospel, enough to compel Peter to write to them addressing the situation. For Christians in the U.S., however, there's, there's a bit of a disconnect here. We have to acknowledge that we are somewhat anomalous in church history because we have not suffered persecution for our faith. We have to admit that we do not share the same set of circumstances as Peter's audience. So the question is, how do we apply what Peter has to say? The angle that I have taken in, in the sermons that I will preach from this book is to look at the issue behind the persecution that these believers were facing. When a culture rejects the church, it may do so with persecution. But that is just one possible outcome. We are not suffering for our faith. But I do believe that the church in the United States is being rejected. Our culture is changing. And many of the changes that it is embracing, we as a church cannot embrace. And as more of these issues arise, we are going to find ourselves increasingly distanced from, rejected, and ostracized. I think it's therefore wise for us to consider how we should respond in those situations. One of Peter's main arguments from the beginning of this letter is that the position of Christians as strangers in the world is not simply the result of the world's response to them. It is a direct result of the gospel itself. Because the gospel transforms us in ways that set us apart from the world around us. It makes us outsiders, regardless of whether or not we're suffering persecution. And the reason why this is significant is because our distinctness in a culture should not be seen as a barrier to displaying the gospel. In fact, in Peter's theology, it's one of the primary ways in which the gospel is displayed. In the years to come, we may lose our political platforms. We may lose board positions in major institutions. We may lose our voice in the mainstream media. We may lose all of our credibility with the culture at large. But even if our voices are completely silenced, the gospel will still be on display in full view of the world around us in our lives. The difference should be obvious. In the remainder of his letter, Peter fleshes out what that distinctiveness should look like. 
And we're going to spend the next two weeks looking at some of what he has to say there. This morning, we're going to look at how the gospel changes our outlook. How the gospel changes our outlook. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Follow along as I read. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul. I get a, a great deal of enjoyment out of the Rocky movies. It, they're, they're great man movies. They have inspirational storylines, knock-down, drag-out boxing matches, uh, Sylvester Stallone, classic 80s soundtracks. I mean, what's not to love? If you're not familiar with the movies, let me, let me first offer to you my condolences and give you a brief synopsis. Rocky Balboa was a bum. When you first meet him, he's a washed-up, past-his-prime, mediocre amateur boxer who has wasted his potential. He spends his days working as a, as a collector for a local bookie in Philadelphia, and his evenings he spends training for boxing matches. But in his fighting, he lacks heart. And in his life, he's really just sort of drifting purposelessly. However, a unique series of events occurs that begins to change all of that for Rocky. Most significantly, he begins a relationship with a young woman whom he's had his eye on for quite some time, a young woman named Adrian. Secondly, he's given the unlikely chance to fight Apollo Creed for the World Heavyweight Championship in an exhibition boxing match. Encouraged by his mentor and trainer, Mick, and driven by his love for Adrian, Rocky takes the fight, and the rest is Hollywood history. You'll have to watch the movies to see how it turns out. But one of my all-time favorite Rocky moments occurs in the final Rocky movie, Rocky Balboa. It's a speech that Rocky delivers to his son, Robert. And it wouldn't be the same if I just read it to you, so I'm going to have the clip played up here for your enjoyment. fit right here. I'd hold you up to say to your mother, this kid's going to be the best kid in the world. This kid's going to be somebody better than anybody ever knew. And you grew up good and wonderful. It was great just watching. Every day was like a privilege. Then the time come for you to be your own man and take on the world, and you did. But somewhere along the line, you changed. 
You stop being you. You let people stick a finger in your face and tell you you're no good. And when things got hard, you started looking for something to blame, like a big shadow. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Now, if you know what you're worth, then go out and get what you're worth. But you've got to be willing to take the hits and not pointing fingers saying you ain't where you want to be because of him or her or anybody. Cowards do that and that ain't you. You're better than that. I'm always going to love you no matter what. No matter what happens. You're my son. You're my blood. You're the best thing in my life. But until you start believing in yourself, you ain't going to have a life. Don't forget to visit your mother. My Bible has a heading for 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. It says, Praise to God for a living hope. That's a good title. But if I was writing that title, I would put there Peter's, let me tell you something you already know, speech. In many ways, Peter's speech, if I can call it that here, reminds me of Rocky's speech to his son. Both speeches are directed at an audience that is somewhat confused and frustrated. Both speeches help by refocusing their audience. They clarify the issues and they give a new perspective. And I think you can break both speeches down into the same three general sections. In Rocky's speech to his son, he begins by reiterating the vision. When he says to, says to his son, um, this kid's going to be somebody better than anybody I ever knew. He's re- reiterating the vision for him. Then he acknowledges the present circumstances. This world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place. And finally, he gives the key to living out the vision within the present circumstances. If you know what you're worth, then go out and get what you're worth. But you've got to be willing to take the hits. Peter's speech also follows that same general framework. So here's how I outline this passage. Verses 3 through 5, Peter is reiterating the vision. In verse 6, he is acknowledging the present circumstances. And finally, in verses 7 through 9, he gives the key to living out the vision within the present circumstances. And in the rest of our time together this morning, I want to sort of walk through this outline to get a sense of what Peter's vision is For the outlook of the outsider. Section one, he reiterates the vision. The vision is that the outlook of the outsider should be characterized by hope and joy because of what God has done for us. 
One of the ways that Peter's speech differs from Rocky's is that Rocky is calling his son out. But Peter, in his speech, is calling us to worship. He's not rebuking, he's rejoicing. In effect, he's actually modeling the vision for us as he lays it out. And the source of Peter's hope and joy, and of ours as well, is found in verse 3. In this passage, Peter has joy because God has been merciful. Specifically, in his mercy, God has given us a new birth through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When you encounter the gospel, the first thing that you have to come to grips with is this. You do not deserve it. You have no claim on it in and of yourself. In fact, the very reason for its existence is because you are broken and filled with sin. And the other thing that the gospel will tell you you is that the, the God who made you, who is responsible for your birth, is absolutely just and absolutely righteous. And because of his character, he will one day call you to account and punish you for the sin that he finds. We are a defiled people living in the presence of a holy God. And that is a terrible place to be. To fully understand what the gospel promises, we must first come to grips with that message. We need to come to understand that reality in order to appreciate then what the gospel offers us. The good news of the gospel is that when God was confronted with the problem of a people who were by their very nature defiled by sin, rather than crushing them, which would have been just, he gave them new natures through a new birth. Verse 3 is filled with all these words that sort of overlap. New birth, living hope, resurrection. The tone is, is jubilant and the theme is life because that is what we have received from God. However, death is not absent from the gospel. For God to maintain both his justice and his righteousness, sin must be punished by death. And sin was crushed, but not in our deaths, but in the death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Peter rejoices even in this, because the one appearance of death in verse 3 is the appearance of death and defeat, because it occurs in the context of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And it is ultimately this that is the living hope into which we have been given new birth. Peter calls it a living hope because it will ultimately satisfy. It's not empty or in vain. Our ultimate hope is that just as Christ was literally physically raised from a literal physical death, we are spiritually raised from a spiritual death and we look forward to a literal physical resurrection from our physical deaths. Peter has hope because the gospel promises that this world is not all that there is. The gospel promises that a physical, tangible inheritance that surpasses any earthly glory or gain awaits us when Christ returns and God's redemptive work in the history of humanity is completed. In in comic book collections, the most valuable pieces are the ones that are in mint condition. A mint condition comic book is one that is old, but is still like new. Its condition is still like new. 
They're valuable because they're so rare. Because comic book pages fray and they tear and the covers come off and the colors fade. The pages are damaged by moisture in the air and even the oils in your skin. If the comic book industry ever folded and they stopped making comic books, there would come a day when there were no more mint-conditioned comic books. In fact, there would come a day when there were no more comic books because they would fade away, they would spoil, they would perish. That's the nature of all earthly things. Any hope rooted in this earth will ultimately end in disappointment. But the inheritance that Peter describes surpasses any earthly glory. It's better than any earthly thing. He uses the strongest language available to him to describe it. It will never perish, spoil, or fade. Literally, the words that he uses are imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. As one commentator I read described it, this inheritance is untouched by death, unstained by sin, and unaffected by time. Hope that is centered on such an inheritance is a living hope because it will never be left wanting. It will be satisfied. There is nothing else that you can put your hope in that will not ultimately fail because it will either die or break down, blemish or spoil, or lose its luster. This is the vision that Peter holds out for our outlook as outsiders. It should be characterized by hope and joy because of what God has done for us. And then Peter moves on into section two. He acknowledges the present circumstances. We suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And here's the problem as as we perceive it here. The vision and outlook characterized by hope and joy is rooted in a reality that is is wonderful. We wouldn't deny that. But it's not really tangible. It's it's predominantly spiritual, and, and ultimately it's awaiting future fulfillment. The problem is that our current reality, our physical, tangible reality, is not quite so rosy. Right? Our, the world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place. In our current day-to-day reality, we are confronted by consistent trials and suffering and grief. Maintaining a focus on what God has done for us is a difficult thing to do when you're struggling in life. When you're struggling, the idea of having joy in suffering or hope in grief sounds and feels antithetical. How how do you do that? But the vision doesn't change. Peter doesn't hedge or make concessions when he acknowledges what reality is like. Even in light of persecution. The people of God are called to be a people characterized by hope and joy because of what God has done for us, even in difficult circumstances. And as I read these verses and I, and I come to the section where uh, Peter talks about our suffering and our trials, his, his tone seems to me to be almost flippant. The, the, the language that he uses isn't as strong as the language that he was using to describe what God has done. 
The, the way he says it in verse 6 almost seems to be aimed at trivializing our trials. Listen to what he says. Though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. I wonder if that jarred his readers a little bit. I wonder how they responded to that. I, I, I kind of wonder if they read that and they said to themselves, well, that's easy for him to say. Because he's not going through what I'm going through. It's easy to say rejoice and hope because of your faith when your faith is not costing you anything. But this is not something that Peter is taking lightly. He, he doesn't bring it up here, but Peter can relate to what these believers are going through. He has suffered persecution for his faith. In the years before this, when, when the church was in its infancy, just starting out in Jerusalem, Peter was arrested and beaten for preaching the gospel on numerous occasions. In fact, he was told by Jesus himself prior to the start of the church in John 21, 18 to 19, that following Jesus would ultimately end in his death and that his death would not be the kind of death that he would want. It's possible, though we don't know for certain, that the persecution that the believers in Asia Minor were undergoing was actually a persecution that Peter underwent himself. It's possible that this is the same persecution in which Peter was arrested and eventually executed, hanging upside down on a cross. Peter is familiar with suffering, and yet he maintains and models for us this vision of what our outlook should be like. And that's what he has for us. In, in the final section, he gives us the key to living out the vision within our current circumstances. The key is that we must learn to value what is truly valuable. We must learn to value what is truly valuable. One of our primary difficulties in facing difficult circumstances with hope and joy is rooted in this aspect of human nature. We are largely ignorant of spiritual realities. And because we're ignorant of their realities, we are, are ignorant of their value. My consistent inability to exhibit hope and joy in what God has done for me is not primarily due to the fact that the source of my hope lies in the future and the source of my problems lies in the present. That is not the primary reason why I fail to exhibit hope and joy. The primary reason, my consistent inability to exhibit hope and joy in God uh, for what God has done for me is because I consistently fail to recognize the value of what God has done for me. We naturally tend to value the tangible over the intangible. But we don't always recognize that tendency. Because of that, I think it's really easy to sort of glide over what Peter says in verse 7. Let me, let me read that again. Talking about our trials, Peter says, These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. 
Here's the point. There is nothing on this earth more valuable to you than your faith. Your spouse, your kids, your house, your income, your health, your health, the Philadelphia Phillies, the World Series, there is nothing on this earth that is more valuable to you than your faith. None of those things will ultimately have a greater yield in your life. And I love that Peter uses gold here as the comparison. There are some illustrations that are universally applicable. Nothing says value to us like gold or money. I mean, look at how much attention the Powerball jackpot got just a little while ago. As soon as that jackpot climbs up into the hundred millions, people go crazy. Can you imagine what it's going to be like when that jackpot crests the one billion dollar threshold for the first time? But Peter's point here, the thing that Peter wants us to understand is that no matter how high that jackpot climbs, our faith is more valuable. The value of faith is based on what it accomplishes. And Peter mentions faith actually three times in this passage. In verse 5, it is the means by which we are shielded by God's power. In verse 7, he he tells of its worth. And in verse 9, we are told that its goal is the salvation of our souls. Your greatest need is your need to be reconciled to God and to be saved from sin and death. Faith is the means by which that need is met. Faith and the mercy of God. And that is a tangible benefit that no amount of money can buy and no earthly glory or gain can exceed. Biblical hope and biblical joy are rooted in that understanding. And we should also clarify that hope and joy in the presence of suffering is not the same as the absence of grief. Peter is not calling us to simply think happy thoughts or or put on a happy face. This is not sound of music joy that we're talking about here. Peter's not saying when the dog bites, when the bee stings, when I'm feeling sad, I simply remember my favorite things and then I don't feel so bad. That's not what he's saying. Hope and joy in times of suffering and grief is not the ability to display an unshakable happiness. It's the ability to demonstrate a faith that God is for us in everything that he does and to respond in every situation with genuine worship. That's true biblical hope and joy. The question is, How do we get there? How do we learn to value the things that are truly valuable? How do we gain an appreciation for spiritual realities? How do we gain such a faith that God is working for our good in everything that he does so that we will respond in all all circumstances with worship? How do we do that? Peter gives the answer, I think, in verse 8. By focusing on Jesus Christ. In verse 8, Peter says, Even though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him 
and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In Jesus, the mercy of God is on display in its greatest and purest form. In Jesus, we see that God does not take suffering or our sin lightly, and neither should we. And there's a sense in which Christ is not currently tangible for us. Peter acknowledges that here. We, we cannot see him now. He, he is visibly and physically inaccessible to us. But that does not mean that he is of no benefit to us. On the contrary, it's our, it's our faith in him and our love of him that is currently, as we speak, in whatever circumstances we may be currently engaged in, bringing about the salvation of our souls. Deliberately cultivating our love for Jesus increases our awareness of what God has done for us. And by extension, it increases our hope and our joy. I want to close this morning with an illustration of what this looks like. Uh, Horatio G. Spafford was a prominent lawyer in the city of Chicago in the 1860s. His law practice and some financial investments that he had wisely made had earned him a great deal of wealth. He and his wife, Anna, had five children. The four oldest were daughters, and the youngest, Horatio Jr., was their only son. Horatio himself served as an elder in a Presbyterian church in Chicago and was good friends with the famous evangelist D.L. Moody. By all accounts, by the end of the 1860s, the Spaffords lived a charmed life. The 1870s, however, brought with them a decade of grief. Tragedy first struck the Spafford family in 1870 when Horatio Jr. contracted scarlet fever and succumbed to the disease. This was followed by the Great Chicago Fires in 1871. The Spafford family and home were spared because they lived north of Chicago in a suburb. But a few months prior to the fires, Horatio had taken the majority of his financial wealth and invested it in real estate on the, on, on the coast of Lake Michigan. Nearly all of his newly purchased investments perished in the fire. And that left their finances mostly depleted. In November of 1873, the Spaffords planned to depart for Europe at the request of D.L. Moody. They thought it would do them some good to take a little vacation. And while they were there, they were going to assist Moody in an, in a, in an evangelistic revival. On the day of their scheduled depart departure, Spafford was detained because of a business emergency that required his attention. But he didn't want his wife and his children to miss their vacation, so he sent them on ahead, promising he would meet up with them in a few days. On November 22, 1873, the ship that they were traveling on was struck by a British iron sailing ship and sank in the middle of the frigid Atlantic Ocean in 12 minutes. Of the 307 passengers aboard the ship, only 81 were rescued. Spafford's wife, Anna, was saved, but all four of his daughters perished. 
Upon her arrival in Europe, Anna telegraphed her husband in a wire that read, Saved alone. What shall I do? Horatio immediately departed for Europe to bring his wife home. After their return to Chicago in 1876, Anne Spafford gave birth to another son, whom they again named Horatio. In 1878, she gave birth to a daughter that they named Bertha. In 1880, at the age of four, Horatio Jr., just like his brother before him, contracted scarlet fever and died. Shortly afterwards, the Spaffords had another daughter whom they named Grace. In September of 1881, the Spaffords left America and settled with a handful of friends in Jerusalem where they established a ministry known as the American Colony, a ministry dedicated to helping the poor and the needy. In spite of everything that they had been through, the Spafford's mission was to demonstrate the love of Jesus to the world around them. Spafford is famous for the hymn, actually the poem that became a hymn, that he wrote on his trip to pick up his wife Anna in Europe. We're about to sing it. It's, it is well. Uh, I want to read it to you before we sing it because I want you to get a sense. When you read this poem, Spafford is laying out his heart for us to see it. We know what was going on. We know the tragedy that befell him. But I want you to see, and I want you to think about where his hope and his joy came from. As Spafford was on his way to Europe, uh, having been informed by the captain of the ship that he was traveling on that they were likely directly over the spot where the, the ship containing his daughters had sunk, Spafford retired alone to his cabin where he penned these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Listen to what happens. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Hope and joy in the midst of grief and suffering. Let's pray together.
God, our Father, you are good to us. We confess that we are often short-sighted and blind to the mercy that you have lavished upon us. By your mercy, you have given us new birth into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We acknowledge this morning that all of our suffering is subordinate to that fact and that you deserve glory and praise for what you have done on our behalf. Father, deepen our love for Jesus so that our lives may demonstrate a hope and a joy that displays to the world what a good God you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.